to wrap up just a couple minutes early so I can get across, across the street for a meeting. So we'll go ahead and get started if that's okay. <clears throat> All right. Um, Austin, who's not chewing in the middle of chewing? Someone go ahead and... <clears throat> 65-year-old man presents with a complaint of double vision on exam covering either eye causes the diplopia to be solved. Which of the following is the most likely cause? MS, Good. C is the right answer. And this is, I just want to put this question in here to remind you guys that when you're talking about diplopia, make sure that you examine the patient to find out if it's monocular or binocular diplopia. So if they cover one eye and it goes away, um, it's usually something, you know, um, it's usually related to a cranial nerve palsy. And it can be really subtle to see the differences. So when you're doing your extraocular eye movements, you know, usually we do it pretty quickly where we just, you know, look left, look right, up, down, whatever. But these can be really, really subtle. So you really want to spend some time doing it. Um, otherwise, you can miss these cranial nerve palsies. So anyhow, that's the most common cause. <clears throat> Question two. Rod, do you want to go? Yes. A traumatic It can be. Very good. Um, so traumatic hyphemas, um, that's the most common cause. You can get spontaneous hyphemas, and that, like sickle cell uh, disease patients, can get spontaneous hyphemas. Um, you definitely don't want them to be supine. You want them to be sitting up. It's not only going to make your exam better, but it's going to help the blood layer out to the bottom of the eye. Um, it does usually require specific management. So if anything that's greater than 30%, um, those oftentimes will even get admitted because of the risk of rebleed and things like that. So most of them are going to re require some sort of intervention here. Um, anyhow, I have a just a some quick I don't know info on hyphema here. So it's bleeding in the anterior chamber comes from a root vessel in the in the ED, you're usually going to get an ophthalmoconsult. You can use topical steroids. I would get that recommendation from your ophthalmologist. You want to elevate the head of the bed. You can shield the eye. That way they're not moving their eye around a lot and stretching those vessels and causing increased bleeding. Um, do not give them aspirin and NSAIDs. That can make the bleeding worse. And obviously these can be associated with um, elevated... Um, intraocular pressure. So if there's any concern for a globe rupture, like in a regular shaped pupil, don't measure the intraocular pressure. Just talk to your ophthalmologist. But if there's no evidence of a globe rupture, then go ahead and get uh, a measurement of the pressure, um, and you'll have to treat that accordingly as well. So they come in grades. It's grades one through four. Um, grade one is less than 33%, and that's really the only one that can be managed on an outpatient basis. Um, Two, three, and four, so 33 to 50% is grade two. 50% um, to like 99%, if you want to say, is grade three. And then anything that fills the entire anterior chamber is considered a grade four. 
and they call that the eight ball sign, where it's basically just the entire pupil is, is covered in blood. You can't see it at all. And re-bleeding usually happens at the three to five day mark. So these are just pictures of hyphemas. Um, as you can see, this is this would be a grade one. This would be something that you could potentially see as an outpatient, although I'll skip the fact that the pupil doesn't look quite regular there. Um, this one here, you know, it's not quite 50%, but significantly larger. And then this is that eight ball sign, the one where the entire anterior chamber is filled. You may see that picture later on, just an FYI. Okay, Shahina, you want to take question three? Good, it is A. So mucormycosis, exactly right answer. Usually you see it in uncontrolled diabetics, but don't forget about your immunocompromised patients. They can get it as well. I had one of these patients at Loma Linda one time, and it was unbelievable the amount of um, surgical resection that they have to do to clear out these fungal infections. This person was like missing half their face. It was unbelievable. It, it's not a subtle presentation. Um, so yeah, basically you have... It's this opportunistic fungal infection, often in diabetics, also in immunocompromised. It invades the vascular network, so basically it just causes death to all the surrounding tissue. Um, it, you, you can get it in the CNS and the lung, but also I think we hear about it most commonly in like the sinuses and facial area. Um, treatment is extensive surgical debridement and amphotericin B. <coughs> Not something you want. And what's, what's her uh, facing? I'm sorry, what's that? What, what is her facies, F-A-C-I-E-S, what if she has a, because she has moon facies, that's the moon facies of chronic steroids, kind of just roundish. Uh, question four. Pam, do you want to take question four? Which of the following is true regarding treatment of otitis media? A few cases will resolve spontaneously without antibiotics. B, oral antibiotics is superior to IM. C, hydrosomox should be reserved for those patients older than two years of age. Uh, D, uh, it represents the number one reason for outpatient antimicrobial prescriptions in the U.S. And E, RLM may be beneficial in patients with PM first. Um, you know what? I'm going to go with D because I think that it is. Um, because we're all jaded. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is the right answer. Um, yes. So it is the reason for. Lots of prescriptions in our world. Um, so the numbers vary, but plus or minus 75% of these will resolve on their own without antibiotics. Um, the reason being is that there's a number of causes, bacteria being one of them, but they're also caused by viruses. And a lot of things can make the TMs look a little bit red, but it always that doesn't mean it's always infected. Um, so... The reason the other ones are wrong is um, many cases will resolve spontaneously. Oral antibiotics and intramuscular antibiotics are uh, of equal efficacy. High dose amox is the right choice, but it shouldn't be reserved for only those kids who are older than two. In <coughs> fact, the most common group that you're going to want to treat is between like the six and 18 months group. So don't reserve it just for the older than two-year-old crowd. 
Um, and then Aralgan, um, good choice for pain relief and ear infections, but not with perforated TMs. Can't use it with uh, if there's a concern for perforation. I don't know. What's Aralgan. the other name for Aralgan? Anybody? <laughs> 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 it's called Aralgan. Aralgan is one of the Topical pain relievers, yeah. I don't know, Karen, I can get back to you on it. So just a little... Yeah, I know. <laughs> All of you people with iPads. There you go. Thank you, Pam. Um, so just a quick note about otitis media. It can be bacterial. It can be viral. Um, nobody wanted to agree on, agree on what's more common. The review book for the board said viral is most common. That's where I got the 75% will resolve on its own number. But when I opened up Tintinale to review a little bit more, they said it was bacterial. So I'm not going to try to wager a guess. Um, so there's a middle ear effusion. There's absent mobility of the TM, bulging TM, or an air uh, fluid level behind the TM. So uh, you want to use high dose amox. The normal dose is like 40 to 50 mg per kg per day. But um, this, for this particular uh, disorder, you want to use high dose amoxicillin. Other alternatives are Bactrim, Azithro, Cefiroxim. Um, or augmentin if the initial therapy, if they're not responsive in 72 hours. But for the kids that are bigger than, I, I think it works out to be like 15 or 20 kilos, just give them the adult dose. I see a lot of people giving like two grams of a <laughs> Yeah. Just take a bottle every day, yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to max out at your adult dosing. Um, just to compare that to otitis externa, which is inflammation of the canal. You can sometimes get a really red canal. You can like barely get the otoscope in there. There's a lot of edema. Sometimes there can be some discharge. <coughs> Comparatively, this is more of like a pseudomonal or a fungal problem. Um, usually they have pain when you tug on their ear or when you press on the pinna. Um, they can have really bad itching and discharge, like we said. Uh, you want to clean the canal, so you can like suction it out or irrigate it. You can use acetic acid to keep the canal dry. Um, and then options for treatment is fluoroquinolone suspension is what they recommended as number one. That's a little bit rate limiting in our patient population because of cost. So corticosporin uh, suspension is um, an alternative, but it has neomycin in it, and there's that theoretical risk of autotoxicity, which is why it's a second-line therapy and not first. Um, who... I think it was Lee Puckett had a great case of malignant otitis external. Fox, was that with you? Yep. Yeah, just the other day, right? Yeah. Um, really good case, got admitted, IV antibiotics, diabetic patient, got big-time antibiotics. And I don't... Yeah. Um, so anyways, don't forget about malignant otitis externa, which is like otitis externa on steroids, and it's in your diabetic patients. <coughs> Uh, question five. Karen, can you do question five? Which of the following is true regarding orbital cellulite? A, pain with extraocular movement is a characteristic finding. B, hematogenous spread of bacteria commonly occurs. C, sinusitis is an uncommon predisposing factor. D, aspergillus is a common cause of acute disease. <coughs> e, periodontal cellulitis <coughs> often spontaneously progresses to involve the orbit. Um, I'm going to go with A. <coughs> a is the right answer. Good. So just a little bit of information on periorbital versus orbital cellulitis. So periorbital is, the patients can have fever, they can have periorbital edema or eye tenderness. They don't have proptosis, they usually don't have conjunctival injection, and they don't have any visual changes. And they usually will not have pain with extraocular movements. 
Um, of course, our patients don't necessarily read the textbooks, and sometimes you're going to get kind of a muddled picture. So a CT scan can help you differentiate if you're having concern um, determining if it's periorbital versus orbital cellulitis. Um, for periorbital, it's more of like the staph infections. Um, it's usually spread um, by blood. Um, treatment of choice is um, augmentin if they're going to be going home. You can also do IV antibiotics in the ED, but periorbital cellulitis doesn't necessarily need to be admitted. Um, contrary to what you'd think, periorbital cellulitis does not always progress to orbital cellulitis. Just because the way the eye is formed, there's a fibrotic tissue layer between the like eyelid area and the actual deep structures of the orbit. So it's not always going to progress to orbital cellulitis. Um, Orbital cellulitis, to differentiate, they are going to have pain with extraocular movements. They will of often complain of uh, decreased visual acuity. They can have a proptotic eyeball where it's, you know, pushed forward a little bit. Um, they'll complain of headaches. They can have ophthalmoplegia. They can have an afferent pupillary defect. Um, it usually spreads from the adjacent structures, from the sinuses usually. Um, here you're going to have, like, uh, some of the causing bacteria are listed up here. And um, also, orbital cellulitis can extend into the dural sinuses and the meninges, so they can end up with a CNS infection. And orbital cellulitis, you're going to want to talk to your ophthalmologist, get them started on IV antibiotics, and get them admitted to the hospital. Question six. Juan, do you want to take question six? Absolutely. Which of the following is the most common complication of Maxillary cellulitis, cavernous thrombosis, meningitis, preceptal cellulitis, or orbital cellulitis. <coughs> All right. <coughs> but we have decided, we have decided D or E. Um, I think it's D. It is. It is D. So all the other ones can happen. They're just less common. Um, so, yeah. And just a quick word on sinusitis. Um, I'm not a big fan of this complaint in the ER. Um, I don't really do a lot about it. <laughs> so acute sinusitis develops over five to seven days, and it has to be, it's less than three weeks. Um, they can have headaches, unilateral, unilateral facial pain. They can have purulent rhinorrhea. They can have fevers. It's usually related to like a viral URI. They can have allergic sinusitis. <clears throat> it can be bacterial. Um, if it's been going on for over a week you can, and it's really bad, you can offer them um, antibiotic therapy. Uh, amoxicillin or Bactrim is a good first choice. Um, Augmentin, Cipro, Azithromycin, Cefiroxim, all fine um, alternatives. You have to treat them for a long time, 10 to 14 days. Um, and you have to be careful if you recommend giving them like nasal spray decongestants or antihistamines. Um, for the nasal sprays, you have to be careful about how long you tell them to use it for because they can get that rebound mucosal congestion and edema, and that's not fun. So chronic sinusitis, it's going to be going on for greater than three weeks. Um, you can, again, you can treat them. Usually you go with Augmentin would be a first-line therapy here just because the antibiotic species are a little bit different after it's been going on for longer. Um, but people will talk about, like, getting... Waters views and things like this to diagnose sinusitis, and I have to admit, I never do that. Does anybody else ever get ultrasound or uh, X-rays or a CT scan? Yeah. So this is a 
this is kind of a frustrating um, diagnosis for me as well because I think patients come in and they really want you to give them the antibiotics. And if it's been less than seven days, I, I don't like giving antibiotics unless they're having high fevers and they look really sick with a lot of things. But my husband has a lot of sinus issues. And so one thing that I really recommend for them is I have this like big plan and this often satisfies the customer service aspect of things that I'm not giving you an antibiotic. And so what I have them do is I have them do BID or, or TID soup cut. Mm -hmm. I have them do sinus rinses, the, mm -hmm. those Neomed sinus rinses where they shoot the bottle of water up their the nose. The neti pot. But it's the actual, the one that you squeeze. Yeah, the neti pot doesn't yeah. work as well. The, the one that you squeeze works a lot, a lot better. I have them do Afrin for just two days. <laughs> so Afrin for just two days before they do the sinus rinse. Mm -hmm. And then obviously Tylenol Motrin is needed for pain. And that seems to clear it up yeah. for a lot of them. And a lot of, when I go through this regimen with them, they're satisfied that they're not doing any antibiotics. Good. This yeah, is like that's a good So how do you do that in the ER with our probes? You just beat their face a little bit? <laughs> Sinus uh, PT in the uh, emergency department. I love it. All right. Question seven. Ahmed, do you want to take question seven? Yeah. Peritonsal abscess refers to collection of pus adjacent to which of the following structures, uh, the palatine tonsil, the pharyngeal tonsil, the lingual tonsil, all of the above, or none of the above? Uh, I believe it is the palatine tonsil. It is. Good guess. Um, so here's a little, <laughs> here's a little picture. Um, so yeah, the palatine tonsil sits between these two arches in the back of the mouth here. Um, the other option is the pharyngeal tonsil. It's like in the posterior nasal pharynx. Um, the lingular tonsil, those are the ones that are on the, you know, when you lift up your tongue on the sides of the tongue there. Uh, so yeah, so it's the palatine tonsil, not all of the above, which uh, is usually the answer when it's an option. So anyways, uh, peritonsillar abscess. <clears throat> so it's the most frequent deep space infection of the head or neck. Uh, Patients can have fever, malaise, hot potato voice, sore throat, dysphagia, um, otalgia, trismus. They'll have the deviated uvula. They can get it bilaterally, so that sometimes can be a little bit misleading. But usually they'll have a deviated uvula, um, a big, you know, huge swelling on one side with edema. Um, and uh, treatment is penicillin or clinda, but you also have to drain this. Um, and so 
I read 85% it's effective if you just do the needle aspiration. You don't need to get in there with your scalpel and start chopping things open. Um, but what do we need to be careful when we, um, when we drain peritonsil or abscess? What are we trying not to hit? Yes, the carotid artery. It's frowned upon to hit the carotid artery. <laughs> so what are some ways that we have of preventing ourselves from hitting the carotid artery? Who's got any tricks to the trade? Right, so you cut the needle cap to prevent yourself from going in further than what, a centimeter about? Yeah? Good. Okay. Um, as opposed to peritonsil or abscess, something we can oftentimes take care of ourselves or with the help of our ENT docs in the ER, and those patients can frequently go home if they're doing okay, versus retropharyngeal abscess, which the retropharyngeal space actually extends all the way from the base of the skull down to the uh, bifurcation of the trachea. So it's a huge area from the mediastinum all the way up to the head. And so um, <coughs> if you get an infection in that space, it can track quickly and it can track fast. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. So patients come in fever, dysphagia, neck pain, sore throat. They have a muffled voice. They can have respiratory distress. Little kids can have strider. And you basically need to get a hold of ENT immediately um, start IV hydration, IV antibiotics, Clinda or Unison, and those folks have to go to the operating room to get their incision and drainage, wherever it may be. Okay? And just a couple other tricks to draining a PTA is just to give them nebulized lidocaine. So if you know someone's got a PTA, <clears throat> put the mask on them. 4% of uh, lidocaine at 5 ml um, a minute. Let it nebulize. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes, and then you can obviously do the local as well. Um, <clears throat> you can consider getting giving them like a pyrolate if you want all the secretions of the mouth to dry up. Usually, I don't find that to be too much of a problem. <coughs> and uh, so, just kind of give them a little extra, extra analgesia locally. And you can drain it under ultrasound guides by placing the endovaginal transducer in the mouth with the condom on it. Try not to use the words endovaginal or condom. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but no, I'm all seriousness, you can, um, after you sufficiently, you know, relax them and numb them up, you can do the in-plane technique, which is where the needle comes in the same plane as the ultrasound beam into the abscess. You can see the whole tip and shaft of the needle coming into the abscess uh, under ultrasound guidance uh, real time. And uh, as long as you, you sort of uh, put, put the probe in it. So if you're looking at the patient's mouth, it's not in the sagittal plane, it's in a transverse plane and put it off to the side so you have enough room to work with your needle coming in. And um, we, you know, that's sort of, uh, seen a whole bunch of those come through QA in the last couple of years, so. Good. <coughs> okay, question eight. Randy, do you want to do question eight? A 32-year-old male presents with eye pain and redness. Slid neck exam, show next slide. Which of the following is the most appropriate the next step in management? Hang on one second, let me give you a slide really quick. Okie dokie. Can you go back to the mm -hmm. It looked like a, a corneal abrasion. Uh, it looked like an ulcer. And I was initially looking for erythromycin drops. I don't see that. So I'm going to go <coughs> valcyclovir. Maybe it was a carrot. Uh, herpes H HSV. Good. It was. Sorry if it's a little bit blurry. So yeah, this is a this is a dendritic ulcer um, for herpes simplex keratitis. Um, 
it usually has these like this thin branching patterns and they have these little terminal bulbs at the end. Um, so if you see this, yes, be concerned for herpes simplex. Um, uh, you want to treat these with, obviously, with um, antivirals. So there's topical antivirals that you can use. You do not, under any circumstances, want to use steroids on these patients because you will make it worse. Um, patients usually have a painful <coughs> red eye. They'll complain of uh, uh, changes to their vision. They can complain of a foreign body sensation, kind of like with a corneal um, ulcer or corneal abrasion. Um, they can have photophobia tearing. It's usually unilateral, very infrequent to get um, herpes in both eyes, unless you're my sister when she got it when she was in high school and she had both of her eyes patched, therefore making her blind for a week, and we had a really good time with that. Um, anyhow, it can also be associated with a vesicular rash on the eyelid or the face. So this is just another picture blown up a little bit better of what the dendrites will look like on exam. Yes, very Christmassy. Um, question nine. Erica, do you want to do question nine? Sure. Which of, the, which of the following is the most characteristic finding on the fundoscopic examination for central retinal artery occlusion? <coughs> I think it's going to be pale, no disc edema, <coughs> no cornea. I'm going to go with A. Good, yeah, it is A. Um, so just to discuss what these other options are. So for central retinal artery occlusion, you get a really pale retina and then a very cherry red fovea. And it's because the vascular supplies are a little bit different. So you've got pale retina as opposed to the, the fovea or the macula that's still getting uh, a good blood supply. And so it, it, it glows cherry red. Um, B, the cloudy cornea with the mid-dilated pupil, what's that? Right, that's called coma, right? If you have disc edema and tortuous veins, yeah, you can get central retinal venous occlusion. They call it, you can get the blood and thunder, they call it. Um, you can also get cotton wool, spatch, uh, cotton wool patches. If it gets bad enough where you're getting ischemia, you'll get little white patches mixed in with your blood and thunder look. We'll take a look at these in a minute. Um, the reddish haze with the black reflex, you can see that in a vitreous hemorrhage. In the gray-green subretinal membrane, not that I've ever seen that, but they describe that in macular degeneration. So central retinal artery occlusion. Um, so these are these are both painless, painless as opposed to glaucoma, which usually hurts. Uh, painless, sudden onset of uh, loss of vision. Uh, it's usually monocular. Um, central retinal artery occlusion can be preceded by amaurosis fugax. Fugay, Fugax, I don't know how to say it 100%, uh, where it's just transient loss of vision. So you have, it's like a preceding event, more or less. Um, it can be associated with an afferent pupillary defect. Um, people can get it, like if they have AFib, it can be an embolic phenomenon. They can get it from some sort of thrombotic phenomenon if they have really bad vascular disease. Um, different types of vasculitis disease can cause it. And then um, our good old sickle cell patients can get it as well. So, uh, treatment, call your ophthalmologist. Digital massage, and yes, that simply means rub their eyeball with your finger. Um, you can also have them breathe into a bag to increase their CO2 levels, and that may be able to dilate vessels and cause the clot to go, um, to go further downstream, at least, uh, to prevent the defect from being so big. Central retinal 
vein occlusion, same thing, painless visual loss. It's usually monocular. You get blood and thunder on your uh, fundoscopic exam. People who have uncontrolled hypertension or hypercoagulable states can get this. And there's not a whole lot of good treatment for this. You can give them an aspirin and call an ophthalmologist, but aspirin's not going to do a whole lot. So um, just to take a look at what, this is the pale retina. You can see very, very pale versus, um, with the cherry red fovea. And then this, this is actually a, a branch retinal um, uh, venous occlusion. Um, just to, I wanted to show you, you know, this is more normal down here, but the part that's having the hemorrhages, these are, this is the blood and thunder look. And these white spots up here, those are the cotton wool patches that you can get. Okay. Question 10. Alright, a 55-year-old male presents with a bump on his lower eyelid. The eyelid is shown on the next slide. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So, IV antibiotics, eyelid culture, warm compresses, needle aspiration of the raised area, or topical antivirals. Um, I'm going to go with warm compresses. That's the right answer. Okay. Um, yes, so this is a hordeolum. The picture didn't come across as well, but right here you can see this kind of red swelling on the lower lid there. So bumps. You can get hordeolum, which is also called a sty. It's a localized infection of the <coughs> gland or, um, um, or at the eyelid margin. It's usually caused by uh, staph aureus, and then treatment is warm compresses. You can use topical um, erythromycin ointment as well. Cordiolums are usually rather acute. They're red, they're, they're painful. Versus a chalazion, which is more of a chronic issue, they can be tender, um, but oftentimes they're painless. Um, and this is, you get chronic inflammation of these glands along the eyelid or at the eyelid margin. And so basically they don't drain well and you get kind of a collection of, of fluid or collection of pus sort of in the gland ducts. Um, you can, they can be recurrent, and if it's, if it's chronic, like a chalazion, they may end up actually having to see ophthalmologists to get it drained or excised. Not something we would do in the emergency department. But for us, the treatment is pretty much the same. Topical erythromycin ointment you can use, and also just warm compresses. Can you tell? I don't think so. Okay, so like going into Not like pink eye or anything, yeah. 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 Can you tell on this good So I went through the internet looking for pictures to try to give you a concrete way of saying one versus the other, and I, the conclusion I came up to is no. <laughs> All the pictures looked exactly the same, so I didn't know how to give you guys any hints for figuring out which one is which. The only thing I can say is the Clasian are usually more chronic, and they're less tender. The hordeolum tends to come up um, within a shorter period of time, so it occurs over a day or two, and they're quite tender. Yeah, I don't, does anyone else have any different? Thank you very much for that. Excellent. Very good. <laughs> all right. Sorry for all the wordiness on this. It is Fugax? Fugax by Merriman Webster. Or Merriman Webster. I don't know what her name is. 
Excellent. All right. Do we have any, is there any resonance left or are we back to the beginning? Oh, Kenny Kim, you're up. 62-year-old female recently started in the center of prayer, presented with two hours, two hours of swelling of her lips and tongue. She has no strider wheezing. Her lingual space is normal, which is the best course of action. So she has ACE inhibitor uh, induced angioedema. Um, which, uh, a is cubed. 50, Benadryl, uh, Solomedrol, uh, nasal A is the right choice. Good job. Um, so yeah, this is trying to, the whole lisinopril thing is trying to get you to go to angioedema. Um, it's actually not very responsive to Benadryl and steroids, but you give it anyways. Just you're throwing the kitchen sink at, at that point when they have facial swelling. Um, she's not in any respiratory distress, so I wouldn't give epinephrine, although if it was severe enough, you can give both racemic epi and sub-Q epi are reasonable choices. I think if you're giving those, she's probably going to the ICU. Um, but the books say if there's no laryngeal edema, the patients can most likely be um, discharged after a period of observation. I would say most of the ones that I've had of these, I end up admitting them for observation. Um, because I'm certainly not doing a nasal pharyngoscopy myself in the emergency department, so normally someone else is involved. Um, but yeah, if they have, if they're on an ACE and they come in with significant angioedema, tongue swelling, <laughs> facial swelling, um, I would say I'm usually admitting them for observation. Has anybody else, Dr. Langdorf, Megan, have you guys had many of these? Where it was like a little bit more chronic, and it was over the. And it, like, Wasn't that exciting on physical exam? Yeah. And I didn't do the. Okay. Do you normally do nasal pharyngoscopy? Like, I mean, no. Realistically? Um, no, I haven't done one in the ED for these. Do they get them when they go upstairs? Um, possibly. always consult ENT if this comes in? Like, if they come in and after six it. hours, they're not worse. You know, it's, we talked about it at the Nightmare Airway last week, and, and yeah, I would probably call in the cavalry unless it's obviously not a bad problem. Patients got yelling by Maybe it's a little swollen. You look at it, I'm not sure. Okay, you wouldn't call in the cavalry to them, but if you got you know, two hours, the other thing is that the, you don't know what the course is going to be. If, you know, if they come in a half an hour, I'm really worried they come in 12 hours later, I'm not going to be worried Yeah, I, I think, think none, none of that stuff is supposed to work. But right. Like Carrie said you do that, you do it all anyway. And if they're bad, you throw the whole kitchen sink out of the 
Yeah, a lot of times you don't, I mean, you think it might be a, an ACE inhibitor, but you're not sure. I mean, mm -hmm. did they have some weird allergy or some weird bug bite or something that caused this? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the reason for the epi and everything. Yeah, I think that's one of the trickiest things about angioedema, especially when it's related to ACE inhibitors, is that um, it's there's studies out there that prove that none of the stuff you use for regular, like swelling edema, allergic reaction type things, none of it works very well. And so if they're going to progress, about the only option you have is trying to make sure that you get to them before they end up in respiratory distress with an airway obstruction. And so I think you have to have, you have to be concerned, um, especially if they're on a long-acting ACE inhibitor or something that's going to be hanging around for a long time. Uh, you need to, you know, um, be cautious about them and keep them in the ER for quite some time if you're going to even think about sending them home. This, I, I would say that if there's any question, your safest bet is to admit them for observation. You can even have, I guess, ENT come down, and if they say there's no edema, um, you know, in the deeper structures, then maybe that would be a decision changer as far as disposition. But, okay. Question 12. Back to the start. Austin, do you want to try this one? Which of the following is true regarding retropharyngeal abscesses? Uh, usually preceded by foreign body aspiration in children. Patients with RPs generally prefer to lie supine. Uh, free vertebral soft tissue swelling in excess of 22 millimeters at level of C2 is diagnostic for an RPA in children and adults. Mycobacterium are the most common causes. Atlantoaxial separation is the most common fatal complication of RPAs. I'm just going to go to C. Okay. I'm not sure. I think it's different in kids and adults, actually. It is different in kids and adults, but at the level of C6. Probably different elsewhere, too. But um, Okay, so let's go through these. Um, does anybody else have another guess, by the way? B, B. B is the right answer. Um, so retropharyngeal... Um, abscesses, um, oftentimes in adults, you'll get like the whole I swallowed a fishbone thing a couple days before, so it's more common in adults uh, than children. Um, they like to lay supine, that is correct. In the, if you think about it anatomically, the swelling is in the retropharyngeal space, so kind of in front of the spinal cord. So if they sit forward, that swelling can hang forward into the airway, obstructing their airway. So they may prefer to lay supine, and that way it opens up their airway a little bit more. So if they're comfortable laying supine, don't make them sit up. That would be bad. <laughs> so let them lay down. Um, so they talk about numbers for this prevertebral soft tissue swelling. So the right answer is at C2, um, it's greater than 7 millimeters. And at C6, it's greater than 14 millimeters in kids and greater than 22 millimeters in adults. And those numbers are always plus or take a little bit, but ballparking it, that's that's the numbers you're looking for. It, although Austin's right that if it really were more than 22 millimeters, that would certainly be diagnostic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So C is probably a right answer, but that's not what they're getting. You're expecting you to know that it's 36 or 7 millimeters in front of C2. Yes, if it was 22, we would be in a world of trouble. Um, Mike, this is incorrect. Staph is the most common cause, and... I thought E was kind of interesting. That is actually a complication of retropharyngeal abscesses um, because the inflammation loosens up the ligaments so they can get atlantoaxial um, separation, and that is bad because um, their head would fall off. Um, but it's not the most common fatal complication. The most common, what would you guys think, 
retrofringial abscess, what do you think would be the most most common fatal complication? Hmm? Airway compromise? Airway. It's airway. Yeah, they lose their airway. <coughs> so I heard a little trick about C. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, um, it's C2, it's 6, and it's C6, it's 22. Okay. So the numbers. Even yeah. Sure, so just remember twos and sixes, is that right? Okay. Good. So six millimeters allowed prevertebral soft tissue in front of C2, mm -hmm. and 22 millimeters of allowed prevertebral soft tissue in front of C6. In adults. In adults. It's a little less than that in kids, but yeah. Good. Thanks, Pam. Okay. I just have, um, these are just a couple of review questions. Uh, I have three of them, and the last one, one of them has a picture to go with it. Um, so... Are we mentally doing these again, and then we'll turn off the <laughs> turn off the recording and go over the answers? Is that how you guys want to do it? Okay. Let me know when you're ready for me to move on. Okay. Oh. Just kidding. Sure False alarm. False alarm. All right. Did everyone get a chance for this one? Hmm? Ahmed, you let me know when you're ready to go on. This one has a picture, so I'm going to have to flip back and forth. So got hit with a soccer ball, and here's your eye exam. Okie dokie. Everybody all finished? Okay. All right, I will go through those in just a minute as soon as I figure out how to turn this off. I was just going to mention oh. something about 